Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Go! Fuck. <laughs> as you can probably hear, I am in Jessica Finley's turn how at the moment, being hurled onto the mat over and over again in the medievally approved fashion. Uh, <laughs> because I am here in Kansas to work with Jessica to produce the medieval wrestling online course I've been talking about since for ages. Um, and we're having a nice time, aren't we, Jessica? We certainly are. Yes. Uh, so we have shot the first four half-hour clips. We've got about two hours of material, which we'll edit down to probably about an hour. So we are well on our way. We've got all the intro stuff done. Yep. We've got, um, gosh, I've hit my head too many times. <laughs> that was a joke. Jessica's a very safe training partner. Um, we've got the intro stuff done. We've got the warm-ups and stuff done. We've got falling and basic mechanics stuff done. And we've got the first six plays of Abradzare in the bag. Yes. I think that was, is that Snaps? Snaps. That, yes, I've seen that in a, in a film that my children like. Yeah. Um, what's it called? I... It's, it's, it's the one with the lawyer with a little dog. Anyway, Reese with a spoon. Hmm, still nothing. Okay. <laughs> so is that a general American thing, not just from that movie? Uh, yeah, I think maybe an American thing. Okay. Um, so, yes, we're having a lovely time, and hopefully we will get the rest of the material, the rest of the choreographical material shot today, and then tomorrow we will come back and get the, okay, so you've got your choreography, now what do you actually do with it material, which is rather more advanced, and of course, some of the German stuff we're going to throw in. Um, so, as you can tell, I am far too busy to do a proper podcast introduction. <laughs> so I'm going to cut this one short and let you guys think about what fun we're having in Kansas in this rather warm weather. <laughs> and um, so without further ado, on with the interview. That was good. Yeah. I like it. That's fun. Okay. Minus David Ito is a fire eater, an FA coach, and former kendo player who plays with long swords now, based in Toronto, Canada. Of course, his main claim to fame, top of the resume, is he appeared on episode 25 of this show. With the world reopening, David is living the life of a literary swashbuckler, fighting with swords, hanging out with glamorous show people, and attending all the scandalous parties. You can find him online at Ito Firesword, that's I-T-T-O Firesword, and fencing at Ito Swords, that's I-T-T-O Swords. So, without further ado, David, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Guy. Well, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, I guess my first question, and anyone who's listened to episode 25 will probably be thinking the same thing. Do you still do 100 burpees every morning? 
I actually still do 100 burpees, not in the morning now, but every day uh, whenever I go training. So okay. a lot of my training days now start at about four, 3 or 4 p.m. every day and conclude at about 10 to 11 p.m. Okay. So you're running on a fairly late schedule. I guess this is because you're a performer. So you have to be like like awake in the evenings. Um, it's also because I work at a fencing school and most right. of that programming happens uh, after school and into the evenings. Sure. So do you have an exercise routine that you do immediately on rising as you used to have or have you have you just let that go? Um, now that the, the world has reopened, I've started using the daytime to do administrative things like answering emails. Okay. Preparing for the day. So now I start all my training in the afternoon. Okay. So a hundred burpees is, is still a sufficient number for you. Is it? I mean, you're not feeling like maybe you should have upped it to 150 by now. Well, uh, some of the, way- <laughs> can, 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 can I just say, I once almost managed to do 50. So I'm teasing you a little bit. Carry on. <laughs> but, okay. So I have started doing uh, twice a week, a hundred of them while wearing 50 pound weight vest and my helmet. So that only happens twice a week. But uh, in addition to the 100 burpees that I do as my warm up for training. So so on that same day, you'll do 100 without the weights. And then at some point later in the training session, you'll do 100 burpees with a weights vest and the helmet on. Yeah, only twice a week. I'll wear only twice a week on my body. <laughs> my god how do your uh, joints manage to survive this uh so i don't go as fast as i can like it's a marathon not a sprint like i'm getting older and i'm feeling the effects of i'm now i'm now middle-aged so yeah how old are you i'm 40 going to be 40 so as of the time of this recording i am about two weeks just over two weeks away from being 42. wow okay so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to be fifty this year. So yes, I've I've been where you are, and I I I remember the the feeling that injuries are starting to take longer to recover from, and that sort of thing. So 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 you're taking it gently by just doing your weighted burpees just twice a week, then. Okay. Yep. So ten every two and a half minutes. The rest of the two and a half minute time frame is a break, and so it's, ah, that's a good way to do it. So you're not doing them consecutively it's in sets of 10 uh right now it's in sets of 10 and uh i'm okay. slow as the weeks progress i i shorten the break by 10 okay. seconds at a time between them okay that's a good way to do it. yeah i'm doing a kettlebell routine at the moment which is a certain number of swings in a minute and then you rest for the rest of that minute and then you do them again and you do you start out with five five swings in five sets and you build it up till you're doing 10 swings in five sets. And then you add a set until you're doing 10 swings in 10 sets. And then when you get there, you go back and you to the beginning and you up the weight and do the whole sequence again. So, so yeah, that, that, those doing it in sets probably uh, makes quite a big difference to how dead or how likely you are to throw up into your helmet. Oh, yeah. And journaling, like keeping track of this progress is absolutely vital. There's a lot of, writing things down to keep track of the exercises I'm doing and the amount of time they're taking. Okay. So, yeah, so because if you're not doing it 
to a consistent time you're, you're adjusting the time down you have to kind of remember where you were and with, even with my quite simple um, kettlebell routine I have a, a whiteboard in my study and I mark off every workout with the, the number of repetitions and the number of sets because there's no way I'm going to remember what I did last time because that was like two days ago <laughs> well exactly life happens yeah um, so we are going to be talking about some of your um, tournament training stuff, but is there anything else you want to go into about how you're training? Because I think I think you are in the historical martial arts world. I th- I think the number of people who could do the training that you do is probably less than a tenth of one percent of people currently doing historical martial arts, right? And because most of us aren't that fit. So any other sort of training? Oh, training I remember. Tips? Um, well, I've been taking advantage of that footwork machine. You remember that I sent Oh, that? yes. Yeah, we have a video of it on, in the show notes for episode 25. So okay. I do a lot of footwork. I pro- Right now, Monday through Friday, I spend at least an hour a day just doing footwork on that machine at various settings and various speeds. Wow. That's a lot of footwork. Do, are you doing that hour, in again, in sets, or is it one continuous hour? Uh, no, it's not in one continuous hour. The different settings are between three to five minutes. Each mm-hmm. of the, the pre-programmed motions are three to five minutes at a time. And then uh, some of the, the settings are designed where it'll pause for three seconds. And I know that it's going to pause for three seconds so I can practice a certain motion. And uh, a large part of the training has been to... Uh, Every day, every day I do this setting four times. I know it pauses 30 times over the course of the three minutes. Each pause is three seconds. And in that time, I can practice the motion associated with hitting the hand. And then I do that's 60 times each round, four rounds, 240 times, five times a week. I practice hitting the hand 1,200 times a week. That is a lot of hand hits. So I imagine you must be quite good at them. By the way, we're talking epee for hand hits, I assume. And longsword. And longsword, okay. Um, so an epee is not a shinai, is not a longsword, um, but you do all three. Um, how do they relate together? How do they complement each other? So in the training, what I've noticed is that uh, I've noticed that when I attack people, the size of my attack is always the same if both of us are using the same length weapons in the sense that if both, if both of us assume a point forward guard and I extend my arm and I find the tip of my sword in front of their guard, I know that if I move one foot length forward, I can reach their hand. If I move about two foot lengths forward, I can hit the front shoulder. And when I'm fencing long sword, and we're both in a point forward guard, it's it's the same distance. I extend right. my arm and my point is in front of their their guard. When I extend my arm, one foot length, I can hit their hand. So no matter what weapon I'm using, I've been using the tip of the weapon as a visual aid to help me figure out how far I need to step to reach their hand. Because I think the weapons may vary in length, but your body stays the same size. So if your point is within a certain distance of their target, 
the same footwork motion will get you to hit the target regardless of what you're holding. Exactly. Like hitting the hands is actually a footwork exercise. Sure. More than it's actually a hand exercise simply because uh, you have to be able to modify the size of the step to move only as far as necessary to reach the target. Okay. Um, I guess like the main difference that I would think of um, in, in this regard between, for example, Epe and Longsword, I'll only talk about Epe and Longsword because I've done both. Um, I don't, I've never done Kendo, so I can't really speak to it. But there's an awful lot of stepping off to the side with the Longsword and practically none with the Epe. So are you using a, the same sort of linear f- sort of sport fencing footwork with Longsword or are you using more historical footwork? I would have to say that I definitely do do a fair bit of linear footwork in longsword. Is I, I'm it's what I've trained the most. Right. But I'm also aware of how my center line in relation uh, how my center line in relation to the other person makes certain covers more or less effective. And it's the same with Epe as well. When I fence Epe, I try to be aware of how our center lines are oriented in relation to each other because it makes certain parents in blade engagements uh, more or less effective. Uh, now, for the listener who may not have an FA background and may have trouble visualizing what you just said, could you give us like a concrete example? Oh, yes, certainly. So if I'm fencing somebody who's right-handed, we're both right-handed, and they are slightly off to my left, it means that when I do the parry four or inside line parry, it won't be as effective. Right. The parry, the parry would have to travel further because they're further over to your left. Yeah. And, and that awareness is universal to Epe, Longsword, and Kendo as well. That awareness of center line orientation in relation to the other person is universal. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And the same is true if they're off to your right then closing the outside line, you have to go further around. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, I'd not really, I'd not really thought of it in those terms before, but I, I had about eight years or so of competitive fencing, sport fencing. Um, so I found it all in all sorts of ways really, really helpful when I was doing longsword fencing or rapier fencing or basically any any kind of fencing because the tournament environment is fairly similar. Um, and actually my life would be a lot easier when training people for tournaments if they just went and did a couple of years of sport fencing first because there's, there's just so much stuff you can pick up about um, how to how to fence which applies pretty much whatever it is you're holding it certainly does and it's why I continue to fence at bay five days a week okay um, so you're working at a fencing club correct what are you teaching there so I am teaching primarily uh, sport at bay. And okay. in the evening, some of the sport fencers there have decided to invest in HEMA equipment. And we've, oh, been, cool. uh, we've been doing lots. So I've had a bunch of sport fencers that I do long sort of on a fairly regular basis. I love that idea because one thing I found like 20 odd years ago, most of the sport fencing scene had no interest in swords at all. They were interested in the sport. Um, and so they didn't care about long swords or rapiers or any of that stuff. They just cared about foil or saber or epic. So it's really nice to hear that, that in your club, some of these sport fencers are actually also interested in swords as swords. They certainly are. Um, I find that 
Yeah, it's been mostly the adults that have been coming through, and there are also a couple of high school age students. They aren't necessarily interested in being competitive epi fencers because they kind of find certain aspects of modern sport fencing to be suicidal. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting question actually because in epi, if I remember rightly, if you hit me two tenths of a second before I hit you, you get the point. Yes, that is true. Okay, um, and that does lead to using double hits or or um, not caring about double hits so long as you are slightly ahead of your opponent. And two-tenths of a second is not a long time. No, that's a very short tempo. But one uh, thing Pepe Fencing has done for me is I've started recognizing when I would likely to, likely be hit first so I would not bother attacking. Okay. Yeah, that makes that's sense. A, that's another way to use the epi training. Yeah. Um, and I guess just, just understanding the difference between the games as they're played. So the rules of epi encourage certain behaviors. The rules of longsword basically vary from sal to sal and from evening to evening because there isn't one consistent set by which under which people fence. So um, it's actually kind of helpful having a fixed rule set with fixed weaponry and a fixed environment so you can see how those rules affect behavior because the same the same tendency for rules to affect behavior is is easy to see it in fencing because everything is consistent um and it's it's harder to see it in historical martial arts because the rule sets keep changing but actually the same kind of adaptation to rule set occurs no matter what the rules are whatever weapon you're fencing yeah okay um so on a slight tangent um, what are the hist- the Toronto Historical Combatants? Um, that's just the name I came up for the sparring group that uh, we. It was just I found martial artists, fencers, historical fencers from throughout Toronto, okay. uh, and we decided to start meeting up in parks based on the based on gathering restrictions during COVID. Okay. So we start we started following all the outdoor gathering. Uh, uh, the rules on gathering outdoors during COVID and we started mm-hmm. playing outside on a regular basis. Um, I came up with Toronto Historical Combatants uh, for the name because of the acronym. So Guy, what's the acronym of Toronto Historical Combatants? THC. Yep. Okay, not everyone will get that. Do you want to unpack it? Oh yeah, so uh it's a it's totally a cannabis reference. <laughs> yes, that's what I I know that. <laughs> yeah. So like because THC is just an acronym for the psychoactive component of cannabis. And so so I take it your club is fairly mellow in their approach. <laughs> I also selected that acronym because it made people remember it. Ah, oh, fair. Yeah. But because in in North America, like when when I tell people about the name of this organization. I then ask them, what's the acronym? And then that, as they're thinking about it, I, it dawns upon them. And I, I yeah. can see them smiling and giggling when they find out oh, yeah. what the name. And if they remember it. Yeah, excellent. Um, so the last time we spoke, your best idea that you hadn't acted on when I interviewed you was creating your own school. Is the THC becoming a school? That's the plan now. I uh, okay. I've got a high, 
I've hired up. Uh, I've hired uh, some one of the at Bay Fencers. I raised or watched grow up at the fencing school and helped raise. Uh, mm-hmm. They now make websites, so I'm going to hire them to do that. I have people that are interested in learning about longsword, and in particular, they're interested in being able to. Uh, they're interested in the the sport type training because they want to try to do the sport based longsword as well and participate okay. in tournaments and in the wider scene. And there really has not been a group in Toronto that was interested in interacting with that aspect of the historical European martial arts. Okay, so you're very much sort of um, tournament sport fencing focused for your longsword stuff. Okay. That makes sense. Not even just tournament, just being able to fence more. Because uh, okay. when I take a look at a lot of the other organizations throughout Canada, they're able to fence fairly quickly. Like they're allowed to experience the art and try light fencing or limited fencing with their friends. And the, at least the one organization that is in Toronto, uh, they're, they're not as interested in sparring as often or fencing as often. Sure. Yeah, because they, their goals are more historical. Their goals are very historical, and they're very much interested in looking at uh, the Fiore martial art as a complete system. And right. what ends up happening was uh, grappling and dagger was a prerequisite to access the fencing. And what I'm okay. finding is that there were a lot of people who gave up. That's ah, lost okay. Because there was this barrier where they had to interact with the wrestling and dagger section in order to pass the test to be allowed to fence. Huh. That's funny because in, in my school, we've never had a test you have to pass to be allowed to fence because there isn't a really clear distinction between fencing and the rest of training because uh, if you take at one extreme, you have a choreographical set drill, like you do this, I do that. And then at the other extreme, you have competitive free fencing. My curriculum developed into a spectrum between those. So at any point in any class, you'll be somewhere along that spectrum doing, and you may move towards the free play end for one bit of the class and back towards the choreographical end for another thing. And then, and it just keeps moving around. So I've never seen the point of having like a formal test that to allow people to free fence. It strikes me as is it sets free fencing as a separate activity to training, whereas to my mind, free fencing should be an integral part of the training. And so do I. And I've I've watched too many people give up because because of that barrier. And Mm -hmm. like I said, that's lost potential. And I have found that people eventually, People will naturally become interested in the grappling and the dagger if they've been fencing. Right. Because, you know, if they've, been pom- yeah, if, they, if they've been pommel struck in the face, they have a vested interest in learning dagger defenses because it will work against pommel strikes. But if exactly. you've never experienced a pommel strike in the face and you're not particularly interested in daggers, why would you bother with all that grappling stuff? Yeah. I'm, I'm a strong proponent of the idea that um, every technical drill you teach a student should be a solution to a problem that the student has actually experienced for themselves. Okay. Um, So you've got, you started out with this very casual meeting up in the park to 
poke your friends in the face sort of club or group. Um, why do you want to formalize it into a school? Uh, I want to formalize it into a school because, uh, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm getting older. I have no STEM education. There's really not much of a pension or old age security for me to look forward to as an artist. Well, yeah, fire, fire eaters don't get a, don't get a pension plan usually. And yeah, this is uh, this is pretty much the retirement plan, guy. I'm going to be teaching okay. until I die. Okay, so so your goal is to make the club into a professional school. Which will actually pay you an in, pay you a living, or at least help me supplement my income. Right. Like, okay. I, as I said, like my at this point, like I was an employment social worker and employment counselor. At my age, I've got a pretty limited skill set. Sure, it's a very cool skill set. I mean, fire eating is is pretty cool, and swords very cool. Um, but yes, I have a similar problem in that my skill set. Is not terribly lucrative. Um, my my approach to the whole old age thing is making scalable products like books and courses, which can hopefully make me money even when you know I have an off day or if, if I broke my leg or something and couldn't fence for three months, I could still sell books and courses and make money that way. Yeah, but uh, I think there's something uh, there's something about how I've you know, some of the drills that I found, some of the uh, things that I've done through my FA and uh, FA fencing and kendo that I've been able to successfully translate over into doing longsword in particular. Okay. Um, so how is the transition from casual club to professional school going? Where are you on that scale? So right now we're getting the website done up. I'm going to be mm -hmm. running the, the first classes starting in june and july okay i'm going to be running them once a week my my sport fencing coach my sport fencing employer has allowed me to use his space on saturdays to start running my medieval longsword courses oh that's fantastic I'm renting space from him and he's definitely charging me below market rate <laughs> <laughs> well market rate in toronto is insane so yes excellent it's great that you're getting that kind of support um so uh, what is the, I mean, okay, one of the things you're going to have to learn if you're going to run this school and make a living at it is, is you need to promote it. So um, what you should have done by this point is tell me the URL, just casually drop it into the conversation so that listeners who are interested can go find it. And also we'll put it in the show notes. So what is your website? Uh, the website is going to be torontohistoricalcombatants.ca. <laughs> okay, perfect. TorontoHistoricalCompetence.ca. Excellent. It is going to. I still have to put it together. I hired one of the students that makes websites, my mm -hmm. friends and students that makes websites, and we are going to put it together and hopefully launch it later this month. Okay. Being well, okay. This, we're recording this on the 18th of May. Right. Um, it's probably going to go out sometime towards the end of June, mid-July, something like that. So oh. by the time people are listening to this, your website should be up and live so they can go and, and cheerfully click on the internet and find you. Wonderful. Excellent. Okay. Um, so you're renting space from your fencing school. Um, 
I assume you're charging like a monthly fee. Uh, yep, yeah, it would be a monthly fee. Uh, that that monthly fee is also is covers things like the the classes and one thing that I bought to lower the barrier to getting people to uh, fence is I bought twenty of those go now foam long swords. <laughs> okay. Because okay, yeah, I just it because if you can get them playing even limited fencing. It's what people are signing up for. Right. So you're hitting very much the, I want to, um, I want to fence with long swords end of the market, as opposed to other clubs in the area who are hitting the, I want to learn nightly combat in a historical manner end of the market. Um, so yeah, your foam swords are probably, probably a good, good way into that. And uh, I also bought 20 of the plastic fetters. I can't remember the okay. name of the company so that people can, and I have the access to the fencing mask. So what people can focus on is if they want to do the long sword fencing with steel, they can focus on saving up for the protective gear and their steel long sword. And those right. intermediary steps with foam and plastic is something they don't have to worry about. Yeah. So you, you've already sunk quite a bit of money into this. Oh yes. Like, as I said, like that's a lot of gear. It is, and uh, I've also bought about eight pairs of of the uh, the Red Dragon hand protection, which is fine for home foam and plastic. I have access okay. to dozens of fencing masks at the sport fencing school. Okay, um, so yeah, so you really need to make sure the business side of the things work because you're already quite deep in the hole. Oh yeah, like it was money that I had saved up. Okay, I have a question for you. Will students be able to leave their equipment in the fencing hall or do they have to take it home with them? They will probably have to take it home with them. We do have some limited locker space. Because here's my thought. Right, when I started my school in 2001, um, I got a full-time space pretty quickly. Like I got to Finland in March 2001 and I rented a full-time space in June that year. Um, long before I could actually justify it or afford it, I thought, I want to sell. So I, yeah, I did. I, I had some money saved up and used some of that to rent the sale for, and fortunately students came and, and so, you know, the rent got paid and whatnot. Um, but the thing is, I put up racks so that students could store their, their swords as they eventually got around to buying them at the sale. And I introduced a rule that if it's dusty or rusty, anyone can use it. So in other words, it gets shifted onto the school rack and you can come back anytime you like and reclaim your sword and put it back on the, on the personal rack. But the rule was basically if you leave it for, you know, long enough for it to get dusty or rusty, it goes onto the, onto the school rack and anybody can use it. And by doing just that, within about a year, I could equip a beginner's course of 20 people with steel long swords and masks only through equipment that students had left in the cell. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which, if you think about the money, that's like, um, that's maybe 10,000 pounds, so maybe 20,000 Canadian dollars worth of gear that I didn't have to buy, but which enabled beginners to get started. Wow. So, okay. So, so if, if you can rig it so that they can leave their stuff in the cell, great. <laughs> okay. And, and, and you use that rule. It, it really does help. Um, and of course, students who absolutely do not want anyone else ever touching their sword ever will take theirs home with them, and that's fine. Yep. Um, but rack space is for people who are using, who are coming to class regularly, 
And this way, if they don't come to class regularly, then the school gets to use their equipment as sort of in lieu of rental, renting the rack space. You know what I mean? Okay. So as long as you're up front with everyone about the rule, that's fine. I, I never had a single complaint about it. All right. Yeah. I actually happen to also own eight steel fetters right now. <laughs> eight? Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, two Fiore templated blunt long swords. Excellent. So I've, uh, I've, uh, but these are things that have accumulated over the years. Sure. Um, okay. Now, since we last spoke, you have been getting heavily into the tournament scene. And given your your current level of fitness and training and whatnot, I think people might be curious. How do you prepare for a tournament? Okay. Uh, so last time we spoke was 2020. Had I done any tournaments since when we met? Or was I just about to do them? I think you would, You may have done one or two, but you were very much sort of starting out in the historical martial arts tournament scene. Uh, so I do what everyone should do. I try to go to bed at a reasonable hour. Okay. Try to wake up early. Uh Eat properly throughout the course of the event. Things like fruit, things like fruit. Eat nuts. Drink the electrolyte. Mix electrolyte powder into water, and uh, I also chug a lot of coffee. There's a lot of coffee that goes into that. Okay, so coffee for like on on the actual tournament day. Oh yeah, um, just sure. Drinking. But okay, but in the in the weeks leading up to the tournament, what do you do? Oh, so in the weeks leading up to the tournament, uh, like I spend 30 to 40 hours a week engaged in fencing. Right. <laughs> okay, that, that would do it. <laughs> yeah. There's not much additional that I really need to do. Uh, some sure. of the things that I actually will do is because at any given time, I'm in, in a state of almost near overtraining or exhaustion. Yeah. So... Uh, I will actually slightly decrease the amount of exercise that I do in the lead up to the tournament just to make sure that I recover properly. That makes sense. And that's one of the things that I do to prepare for a tournament. The other thing that I try to do to prepare for tournaments uh, is usually in the lead up to it, I do a lot more fencing, just light sparring, and I just do a lot more of it. Okay. Um, do you look at who's likely to be coming to the fencing match and watch their bouts on video or whatnot and figure out ways of defeating specific opponents? I haven't really done that. Like, uh, so in terms of how I've been doing in uh, the, the tournaments, uh, I haven't really watched many videos. But one thing I do notice Anytime I do watch videos of others is I just watch the frequency with which they fail to extend their arm first. And if they're failing okay. to extend their arm first, there's really not much need to watch anymore. Yes. Or if uh, okay. uh, other things that I notice is uh, if I do watch video, uh, I'll, I'll watch the quality of their footwork and how often they're trying to seek a second intention action is uh, if, if people, I've noticed that a lot of people are trying to set up binds and winds or uh, yep. using the descending cut to get the other person to parry so they can do the second intention horizontal cut to the other side. Right. And so if, pe- if that's how people are fencing, then uh, I usually, that's all I need to know. 
And what, okay, what do you do about it? If that, if that's all you need to know, what has it told you and what do you do? Um, so if people aren't extending their arm first, it means that's going to be fairly easy to tag them in the hands or hit them with the tax into preparation or you disengage counterattacks against them. Okay. Um, if the quality of footwork is sloppy, um, it actually means that they're expending more energy per second when they're moving. So they're going to tire themselves out. They take If they are taking large injudicious steps back, I might as well just get them to step out of the ring or force them to the edge of the ring so they can't keep retreating. And if people are regularly trying to set up a this bear howl movement, it means that they're committed to getting close, which means that they're not necessarily used to fencing at the, the longer ranges. Because one thing I, I've noticed now that I've been doing more tournaments is that people tend to stand post a didana a lot with okay. the intention of cross-stepping a very long distance to then be able to throw the, the sperkhau or the, the metsani cut from the other side. And that's like extremely far away. I find that most people are standing extremely far away from each other. Okay. And so what advantage does that, does that give you? Well, I know that they're far away, so that it just means that if I step forward, they're probably going to keep stepping backward. I know that if people are trying to launch the, the, the descending cut horizontal cut combination, that they're probably going to try to like fence from too far away. And uh, okay, I'm just trying to find the words to describe it. I'm used to fencing at a much closer distance from doing epic. Right. Okay. So you, what you'll do is if they want to fence at a particular distance, you'll crowd the distance on them. Yeah, because they'll step yeah. backward. Okay. Either you run them out of the ring or you end up closer than they want you to be. Yeah. And usually I, I fence point forward because of things like Ape and Kendo. Their first action is usually an action against my blade sure. to displace the point. So then it's possible to do a disengage counterattack. Okay. So as they're coming to bind your weapon, you just disengage and hit them on the other side. Yeah, and it, it does seem like most people are used to fencing from the bind. This is a funny thing. I've noticed this in a lot of sort of medieval longsword circles is people fetishize the bind to a very odd degree. So like I've heard people say that you, you cut to create the crossing, right? Which to me makes no sense at all. To my mind, you cut to hit your opponent. And if they put their sword in the way, a crossing occurs, but the aim is never to generate a crossing. The aim is always to either control their weapon or hit them or both. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems like people are fencing in a manner to action, to, uh, to seek the bind, to set up a second intention action. Yeah. And I think binding and winding are the things that you do that when you find yourself in that situation, it's not the thing that you're actively seeking to do. Right. Because why would you? It requires you to get closer to the other person. And I don't want to get closer to the other person because that's just more surface area. I have to think about covering. Okay. And so things that I've, that I learned in Epe and Kendo was how to fence at those longer ranges. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's been working. I think, Excellent. uh, I think since you last we last spoke, um, I did a longsword tournament in Minneapolis. 
Mm-hmm. And April, I did a long sort of tournament in uh, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I got gold medals in both of those. <laughs> you know what? A bit of actual sport fencing training really does help. <laughs> and then um, I've been doing uh, sport FA tournaments, and uh, yeah. and I've, I've so far, I think in this year alone, I've managed to accumulate uh, four medals just doing sport fencing as well. So this Excellent. year alone, yeah, I've been this competitive. This I, I this season starts in September. So since uh, since I started going to competitions very actively, uh, I think it's been about six medals in six months. <laughs> that's, that's not bad. Excellent. Um, so so clearly, what you're doing is working for you. Um, I'm trying to think like. For the av- the average listener is not going to be training or doing sword stuff thirty to forty hours a week. They have day jobs, um, yeah. but if someone is interested in tournament fencing and they only are training, should we say, two evenings a week for two hours a time, what would you suggest they focus on? Footwork. Ha <laughs> ha! You're a man after my own heart, sir. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's the only thing that's applicable to all weapons. Okay. Yeah. Fair point. Um, I mean, I find the mechanics of Fiori's longsword stuff is very, very different to the mechanics of rapier, which is very, very different to the mechanics of French foil as I studied it in the eighties and nineties. So the, there's a risk there that you end up with a set of, of footwork mechanics that works for any sport fencing, but doesn't necessarily work for um, like the actual martial art of rapier fencing or longsword fencing or whatever. What do you say to that? Um, I think I fundamentally believe it's all the same. Like you widen your stance, you bend your knees, you lower your center of mass. You like the, most of the steps that you take are the same. We're bipeds, limited by the rules of physics and how those rules um, affect our body. And like I, I find that in kendo, epe, as well as even in long sword fencing, a step forward is a step forward, a step back is a step back. You can cross step with them. You can step to the side. You can step at angles. Okay. Bypass, it's universal movement. Um, but the stuff you use in tournaments is missing things like the turning actions you would use in, for example, a hip threat. Oh, I, I've... Uh, I have pivoted on my feet to get out of the way. Okay. It, do, you, it, do you practice that? Um, no, I normally don't practice that. Okay. So yeah, this 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 is this is my sort of my should we say cautionary codicil to the yes, absolutely do lots of footwork all the time. Is make sure that it's not just the stuff that you if if you're interested in the historical side of things, make sure that the footwork you're doing is not just the stuff that you only do in tournaments. Um, which have all sorts of restrictions perhaps on wrestling and grappling or whatever else. Make sure that you, you get your body used to doing all the motions that the art that you're trying to recreate requires. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Now, very important question. And, and I'm, I'm actually a little bit upset by this one. I have to know, David, why am I not invited to all these scandalous parties? If you're in Toronto, you could be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. I need to get to Toronto for some scandalous partying. 
Yeah, it's the it's the kind. Yeah, it's the scandalous kind, the not safe for work kind. <laughs> Splendid. Um, okay, and when we were talking before, um, I described my push-up, twisting, squat, jump, burpees to you, and I have to ask, as a burpee person, have you tried my push-up, twisting, squat, jump, burpees? It was agony. It was great. <laughs> That's a good answer. It was, and and yes, it was agony. It was great. Not something you often hear together, but with these, it's it's good. Have you incorporated them into your regular training, or did you just try them the once? I sometimes make the kids do them. <laughs> I do Excellent. it with them. Well, of course. I mean, you have to. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, I lead the kids through a lot of, uh, a, like, a regular calisthenic routine. And uh, sometimes when I'm not, when I'm, I always tell the kids that when I'm feeling really lazy or uh, in a very good mood, we're going to do 100 burpees in a row. I call it the really lazy workout because I don't have to think about what we're going to do. And all I have to do is count to 100 so I don't have to engage my brain. But what's, what's really good fun is when you get to like 98 or 99, you start losing count. Was it 92, oh, yeah. 93, 94, 95, 91, 92? Yeah. Well, I've done that. Like sometimes kids are – so the kids are actually done pretty good at doing burpees where they're talking while doing them. Wow. So when that happens, I said, oh, you're distracting me. I lost count. (laughs) Yeah. And then some smart asses do things like start calling out random numbers. (laughs) And if it's sufficiently low enough, well, I guess I start counting from that number. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, All right. So – uh, oh, one one variation that you could try, it solves the talking problem straight away, right? What you do is you get them to take a deep breath and breathe all the way out and then do as many as they can before they have to breathe in again. Oh, that could be that. That would be agony too. It would be great. It is, it is absolute murder. Um, and, and for extra points, you make the in-breath that you eventually get slow. Don't just suck it in really fast. Just do it under control. It is, it's a really useful discipline. I find it particularly helpful when, let's say you're fencing and maybe as I have occasionally done, maybe you've neglected your conditioning a little bit um, and you find yourself getting out of breath when fencing, then the ability to continue moving while, it, while desperate for air is useful, but also the ability to retain control of your breathing even when your body is in a significant oxygen debt is really useful too. Wow, yeah, that's actually a good idea. I did something similar preparing for my first tournament in the States. We were we still had to wear masks. So what I did was I took some of my cloth masks, I saturated them in water and put them on my face and went fencing. <laughs> Agony. Oh my God. How then, was it? Oh, it was, it was awful. But <laughs> on show day, on like the actual tournament day, I bought a box of medical masks and every yeah. bout, I just changed masks. So I would have a dry, fresh mask. And just, Which is luxury. If you're used to fencing in a wet mask, having a dry, fresh one feels like luxury. It, it, it did. So I, I, I was intentionally depriving myself of oxygen in yeah. the lead ups to the first American tournament that I did, and I think that was back in 2022. Okay, and 
yeah, it's it's it really makes all the difference in the world if you have the conditioning for it, so that whatever you're doing in the tournament is not physically challenging. So all you need to do is pay attention to what your opponent is doing and timing and measure and that kind of stuff. Makes all yeah, the difference. And helpful. Yeah. yeah. So if I think about how often most people get to train, for most people, training three times a week is a lot. So for them, yeah. it's six hours. And I've, I've had the good fortune of often being able to just do footwork for that many hours a week. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, in addition to everything else. Yeah. And also, one thing I find with the, the emptying your lungs and doing the exercise thing, if you don't have very much time, because, you know, Okay, you do this for a living, I do it for a living. We don't really have the excuse of saying, I didn't have time to train today. Um, but for people who aren't in that position, they may only have five minutes, right? Before a meeting or after lunch or whatever. And if you want to get, if you want to do fitness training, but you don't have very long, you build up the oxygen debt, not just by burning up the fuel, but by restricting the supply. So you, you breathe out and you exercise like hell without breathing. And yeah, you, you get that, that sense of, oh dear God, I'm going to die in, in seconds rather than in minutes. So it saves a lot of time. Certainly does. So yeah, you're right. Any anaerobic activity like that is very helpful. Sure. Um, okay. So the last time I asked you about your, the best idea you hadn't acted on was start a school. And now you've done that. So I guess my question now would be, now that you've done that, what is your next best idea you haven't acted on? Getting athletes onto the podium. <laughs> I love it. So, well, you are acting on it, though. Well, right now, it's just I've got to get them onto the podium. Okay. And, okay, when when do you think you'll have your first student standing on the podium? I'm hoping, uh, I, I don't know yet. Okay. Um, do, you have any, do you have students at the moment who are interested in that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, I have... Uh, I'm hoping, my hope is in November, we're doing a tournament within our province, and I'm okay. hoping to get one of them onto the podium because it doesn't matter if, if I can get myself up there, if I can get someone else up there, it means that right. I'm able to successfully transmit information. Exactly. You know, when I've been running my school for about two years, and this was in like 2001, 2002, so the, the tournament scene didn't exist yet. Um, I was free fencing with one of my students who had no martial arts or fencing training at all before he started with me in March 2001. And about 18 months after he started, in free fencing with me, he disarmed me. That's right? amazing. And I was like, it's, it's seriously, it is still 20 odd years later, it is one of the highlights of my professional life so far because it was concrete evidence in that I could actually do my job properly. Yep. Um, and in, in an environment where there really wasn't much in the way of like external um, validation factors, like there was, there was no way to really test whether my students knew what they were doing or not. Um, so having having this this chap Toppy, who is actually godfather to my eldest child, <laughs> not just because he took my long sword off me when we were free fencing, but um, he's just a very good chap anyway. Um, but he's uh, that it was it was just holy shit. What I'm doing is working. So satisfying. It is um, because we're, we are temporary on this earth, and uh, you create legacies by passing on information. Right. Um, so the 
this episode will go out long before um, the tournament. If one of your students gets onto the podium, I want you to send me a picture and we'll stick it in the show notes. I would love that. Yeah, of course I will. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So last time you would have spent your million fictional dollars on getting equipment sized for everybody. Um, is that still where you would put the money or would you do something else with it? Research into equipment has been quite important. I, yeah. I, but now we, we're now seeing that manufacturers are taking a little bit more seriously making equipment in more sizes as the technology right. improves. <laughs> and uh, I, so I, by itself, that is a diversity issue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the next thing I might want to, would like to actually see done is see more study done on the injuries that are happening in the sport. Okay. Because one thing I have noticed since I did start competing is that uh, there, there are some hard hits that people eat. Concussions are a thing. People are medically retiring because of yeah. traumatic brain injuries. It's just, uh, something to the effect of being able to use that money to fund studies on how things like rule sets might right. affect, especially affect the probability of injury. Yeah, and it's, it's worth noting that um, before this show goes out, so obviously you won't have heard it yet, um, I have an interview with um, Sarah Lewis, who has a, got a bash to the head and you know various injuries because of it. And so it's probably worth listening to that episode. It should be episode 162. Um, and I also talked to Marie Maservi, Dr. Marie Maservi, um, in episode 160, and she has issues around getting hit in the head thanks to a very detachable retina. So um, people who are interested in that particular topic, both um, Dr. Lewis and Dr. Maservi are like in the medical space, sort of medical professionals. So they have some very interesting ideas about maybe what we should and shouldn't be doing. Um, one thing that I wish wouldn't happen is in, in like most modern HEMA rules is that they don't assign more point value to the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would help. And uh, also some of the afterblow rules, in, what, what I witnessed was it encouraged extremely wild swings for the head because yeah. of the point value. And yeah. uh, the lockout time for the afterblow. Right. Yes. And so, so basically also re reducing the incentive for hard head hits will go a long way to getting rid of them. Yeah. And the okay. rule sets, I believe, will play a large part in that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you given any thought to neck strength training as a way of preventing concussion? Uh, well, that's why I do burpees with the helmet on. Right. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Do you have any other sort of neck exercises you do for that purpose? Uh, the main one is just walking around in my helmet. Okay. Uh, I have done I... things like nod yes, nod no while lying on my back and elevating my head, holding a plank while moving my head in various directions. Okay. Does that help? Well, my neck feels stronger. Like I could definitely feel the burn the first time I did it. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently thinking about developing a, a neck strengthening routine to prevent, or not prevent, you can't prevent concussion with that, but so shall we say mitigate 
some of the some of the effects okay. of concussion. Yeah, because there is some good good evidence to suppose that particularly um, sort of fast twitch response muscles uh, muscles in the neck, um, if they are stronger than when you get hit in the head, you're basically your your body can stabilize it faster, and so there is less damage to the brain. Um, but um, I need I need to do a bit more research on it. Because um, it again, it's just I don't like seeing people having to stop doing this right. because of injuries. It's not necessary. Yeah, and and a lot of those injuries could be prevented with better rule sets. Yeah, better rule sets, and also uh, training people to control their actions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I've definitely noticed that people tend to hit harder when they get tired. Right. So if they were fitter and had done their burpees before, you know, in the lead up to the tournament, then perhaps they wouldn't be so tired. So they perhaps wouldn't. Yeah, it it wouldn't. No, I'm. It's probably not a good idea to have a fitness test before a tournament because that's not really fair. But I think maybe if it was, if if it was, if someone was getting tired. Judges were more keen on intervening and saying, look, you need to have a break, right? So yeah. it being perhaps a bit more normal to take breaks if someone is getting tired rather than... Because at the moment, if your opponent gets tired, that's good for you. They're more likely to make mistakes or whatever. So the person who is fitter is less in, is not incentivized to, um, you know, to, to give the person a break. But for safety purposes, it might be better if there was... Um, like a culture of, I don't want to fence you when you're tired. I want to fence you when you're at your best. Take a rest. Do you see what I mean? Yep. I just don't know how that works for most tournament organizers because they're often yeah. having constraints. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not suggesting making it as a serious suggestion for people organizing tournaments because I can. I can see it would be a nightmare to implement, but it's something that maybe we should think about. Oh yes. Anything that we can do to try to make this less dangerous for people is important because we want our friends to be able to play with us. <laughs> exactly. Um, but any any parting remarks? Anything you want to add? Um, oh, oh, one thing I might add, just going back to like the idea of the FA Shania longsword not being the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know what Perry Six is and yeah. FA right you palm up to the outside yeah false edge yeah false edge so one thing that i've noticed with outside line parries is that um, when you do that palm up outside parry Mm -hmm. uh, circle six um the fa because the fa doesn't sit perfectly in the center of your hand when you go palm up it actually moves the blade more to the outside Mm -hmm. so i started applying that with long sword when i do outside line covers with the long sword I do it palm up like a oh, God. So do I. Always have done. Because, not least because it's explicit in the Italian tradition, um, Fiore and Vari both, that bl- rising and horizontal blows from the reversal side are done with the false edge. And so yeah. whenever you're parrying to your outside, you'll be using the false edge. So this business of like turning the true edge to parry to the outside, like you would in, for example, second with an epee or seconda with a rapier, I barely ever do it with a longsword. It's almost invariably false edge. It's faster, cleaner, and it, and it follows the text. So I'm entirely, entirely on your side on that one. 
And yeah, I don't know why people do outside line parries with their true edge and long sword when you could just use the false edge because much like in Epe, it actually moves the blade a little bit further to the outside. Yeah. And you don't have to cross your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Which is even better. Yeah. Excellent. I, th- I think we think alike on this and I hope the next time I get to Toronto, we'll get to fence a bit. Oh, yes. That would be lovely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, David. It's been lovely to see you again. Thank you so much, Guy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And I should point out that just the other day, in fact, this morning, sorry, I'm a bit jet-lagged, I posted a magnificent picture of a magnificent hat that I found in Jessica Finley's magnificent turnhal. And if you want to see that, awesome hat on my head, then you have to go to Sword People to see it. And that's not actually a very good inducement, but never mind. It's the best I've got at the moment because, like I said, jet lag and rolling around on the floor getting stomped on by the excellent Jessica. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd particularly like to thank the people who made it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King, as always, for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show. He originally recorded them for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project, which you can find at swordschool.shop if you're interested. Join us next week when I'm talking to Brittany Reeves. Again, yes, she has been on the show before. She is the head instructor of Maud Howe Historical Combat in Mesa, Arizona, and is a seasoned instructor having taught across Europe and North America with a specialization in test cutting with sharp blades. And of course, she is most famous for her first appearance on this show in episode 22. We discuss all sorts of things about cutting and other elements of historical martial arts, and including art history um, in the Fechtbooker. So it's a fascinating conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you very soon.